Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Poisons and Pestilence podcast. Baby, you can light my fire lance. It has been a while since our last regular episode. Too long, in fact. The reasons for this are pretty banal, but as summer in the UK sweeps soggily into view, you can rest assured that this show will be popping up more frequently on your player notifications. We have some stellar guests lined up, which I hope are going to help me put together some excellent specials. And in addition, I've been busy researching future episodes. I had anticipated that early gunpowder history would be a slight detour on our journey, before moving on to issues more central to the history of poison and disease warfare. But how wrong I was. Turns out we have at least two more episodes looking at the global spread of gunpowder, with this one focusing on the transit of gunpowder, and this potentially extends to poisoned gunpowder weapons. This will hopefully uh, put a finer point on some of the vaguer allusions to this transit I made in episode 11. This will also provide context for the examination of the adoption of gunpowder in the West in later episodes. So, I hope you enjoy this episode, and do remember that the transcript and references for the work are always available in the show notes. In the grander sweep of history, the introduction of gunpowder to the West, as early as the 1260s, would ultimately prove the death knell for Eastern dominance in gunpowder weapons, and gunpowder innovation more generally, ultimately leading to a reversing direction of travel with the West having begun to export their own gunpowder inventions back to the East by the turn of the 16th century, most notably handguns and cannon. For this reason, it seems tempting to assume that the evening years of Chinese gunpowder innovation should be of little interest. Chinese gunpowder weapons may have been diverse and bonkers, but they just didn't match up to the arms developed by Western engineers. There is, of course, a substantial grain of truth in this, with the West seemingly taking up the challenge of refining gunpowder weapons for the needs of their wars, transforming them into bigger, more efficient and more destructive systems, which would return to China in the hands of invading forces, with the defending Chinese not only becoming victims to the technological inertia created by these Western weapons, but also a major customer and imitator. But to leave it there misses out on some very interesting questions about the Western spread of gunpowder because while the West seemingly had more interest in making big things go bang with gunpowder than using it to poison enemies, that doesn't mean that Western states did not learn about these weapons, end upon a receiving end of them, or even, for a short while at least, experiment with or adopt them. And indeed, it is also worth remembering that the use of certain rudimentary Eastern gunpowder weapon technologies, including stink pots and fire lances, continued in the East well into the years the Western gunpowder came to dominate in the West, well into the 20th century in fact. These rudimentary types of weapon were also employed in places like Britain up to and including the 17th century. For these reasons, while the exposure of the West to specific Eastern gunpowder weapons is certainly a marginal issue when looking at the history of gunpowder more broadly, it is potentially very interesting indeed if we are interested in the use of Eastern-style poison weapon systems. And in the rest of this episode, we're going to examine this idea in greater detail, in a story which centres on the Mongols. The Mongols were a group of nomadic tribes that originated from the Central Asian steppe. They had a fearsome reputation as raiders. 
and conquered vast territories across Eurasia. Their culture centred on nomadic herding and horse warfare, and they were a hard people. Many of their leaders fiercely resisted the flabbiness which emerged as a result of the more sedentary lifestyles that regional warlords would adopt in conquered lands. Horsemanship and guile was central to their military campaigns, as was their ability to integrate military units and tactics from conquered people into their warfare. In order to understand the rise of the Mongols and their relationship with Eastern gunpowder warfare, it's worth putting a slightly finer point on some of the issue covered in episode 11. The use of gunpowder in Chinese warfare can be traced back to the early 10th century. However, it was during the 11th and 12th centuries that gunpowder weapons became endemic in the region. And this development was further solidified during a period of conflict between regional powers. Most notably for our story, between the Southern Song Dynasty, situated in what is today southeastern mainland China, and the Jin, their northern neighbours. Both the Jin and the Song empires spent decades experimenting with and exchanging gunpowder weapon technology, driven by their regional conflicts. By the 13th century then, new and powerful weapons had been developed and fielded in the context of dynastic wars, including gunpowder fire arrows, as well as fire lances. In addition, exploding iron bombs, usually launched by catapult, were also developed, as we think were weapons developed for use on ships. These conflicts then acted as a crucible for weapon development, and impacted upon fortifications and battlefield strategy. As we saw in the previous episode, this appears to have included weapons developed with their poisoning effects in mind, most notably fire lances and other systems which projected toxic smokes. It seems likely that the Song and possibly Jin forces employed these weapon systems quite regularly, especially when defending fortifications. Fire lances were undoubtedly employed, and they were perhaps also igniting bombs spiced with toxic and irritant chemicals. While these early weapons primarily generated smoke and flame, they also increasingly included high nitrate powder mixes, which acted with explosive force, meaning more powerful projectors and bombs. It was in this context that the expanding Mongol Empire entered the fray, going to war first with the Jin in around the 1210s and rapidly overwhelming them. In Jin histories, there is reference to the use of finances against the Mongol invaders. Likewise, there are also claims of the use of other weapons during the war, including reference to cast iron bombs. The Mongols, having been on the receiving end of these weapons, seem to have first adopted them during this conflict, often employing captured engineers and likely securing resources for production and maintenance from captured territories. After beating the Jin, the Mongols then turned their attentions to the Song in the late 1220s, not only bringing Jin technologies to bear on the Song, but also gradually integrating newly acquired Song weapons into their arsenal. This would increasingly include the more modern, high-nitrate gunpowder weapons with metal barrels, as well as munitions with metal casings. Historically, there has been some resistance to the idea that the Mongols employed Chinese gunpowder weapons at all, or at least to any significant degree. But it is claimed among those that support the idea that the Mongols deployed gunpowder weapons throughout the 13th century, relying primarily on the integration of Chinese forces into their military. This was the century in which they rapidly expanded west, with the use tailing off after this in the twilight years of the empire, perhaps due to the lack of means or necessity. And this, I think, seems a reasonable position to take. It's also clear that we are dealing with a vast and disparate empire, engaged in numerous distinct conflicts. And so even if these weapons were employed sometimes, it seems likely that the employment would not have been universal, 
and would have varied in terms of the types of weapons employed, the importance afforded to them, and let's not forget, the presence of the specific Chinese units which appear to have been central to the use of gunpowder by the Empire. There is various types of evidence that the Mongols employed these weapons when they could. There is even a specific claim of the use of poison gunpowder weapons by invading Mongol forces during the Battle of Lignitz in Poland in April 1241. This is found in a sweeping history covering the era written by a famous Polish chronicler. It all centres in a brief but vivid account of the battle that day. The translation reads, Among the Tartar standards is a huge one with a giant X painted on it. It is topped with an ugly black head, with a chin covered with hair. As the Tartars withdraw some hundred paces, the bearer of this standard begins violently shaking the great head, from which there suddenly bursts a cloud with a foul smell that envelopes the poles and makes them all but faint, so that they are incapable of fighting. We know that in their wars the Tartars have always used the allies of divination and witchcraft, and this is what they are doing now. Poles are daunted by the cloud and its foul smell. The Tartars raise a great shout, and a huge slaughter ensues. This snippet is certainly not a smoking gun by any stretch of the imagination. First, there is some inherent ambiguity in the description of the device, which may be a consequence of the translation, or explained by the fact that any European eyewitness would have likely been seeing a new type of weapon for the first time, and perhaps doing so through streaming eyes. It is tempting, of course, knowing what we know about Chinese gunpowder warfare, to assume this description relates to some form of smoke projector, such as those covered in our episode on China. The big issue, however, is the provenance of the account, which is lost to history. The description occurs in the work of a well-respected Polish chronicler writing over 200 years after the alleged event took place. It is of course likely that he was drawing on earlier historical sources, but from what I've been able to deduce, we can't be sure which, and these, anyway, have likely disappeared. Ironically, the ambiguity inherent in the description perhaps lends some credence to the tale. The chronicler was familiar with later gunpowder-based warfare in Europe, but the weapon described here seems to be of a much earlier type of Chinese weapon. It seems likely to me that either he, or the source he uses, would have had been very lucky to imagine out of thin air such a fantastical weapon, which only in hindsight can we confirm was likely in use in distant China in this era. Nor did it seem that he had any inclination to seek out and trawl Chinese materials on this subject, according to those who have characterised his scholarship. His source may, of course, have stumbled upon Chinese literature on this topic, which became the basis for a tall tale, which the chronicler duly reported. But sadly, it seems we will never know. So tantalising, yes, but sadly inconclusive. However, what appears to be a more important question for future episodes is the potential role that the Mongols played in transmitting knowledge to the West about how to produce such weapons. The seminal history on this subject identifies three distinct channels for the transmission of gunpowder, and later, more advanced gunpowder technologies out of China which they even kindly put together in a schematic. Now, frustrated as we are by the podcast medium, it will probably suffice for most listeners for me to say that this diagram looks a lot like a Beijing subway map, with many routes and directions of travel linking central hubs such as China, India, Europe and the Arab peoples. Uh, I have also reproduced this butte in the show notes. Needham's three-part hypothesis 
has sparked academic debates since, but it is useful for our purposes for sketching at least a starting point for understanding available routes of a time and the rough periods in which transmission occurred. The first major development was the spread of knowledge of gunpowder to Europe, which results in the earliest reference to gunpowder by the English philosopher Roger Bacon in the 1260s. There is a good case to be made that this knowledge travelled, perhaps along with some souvenir Chinese firecrackers, via a number of recorded return trips to Mongol territories by clergymen, nobles, engineers and traders in the decades preceding Bacon's writings. The second major transmission is that of knowledge of fire lances, bombs and rockets, which found their way into Arabic sources by the 1280s in the works of Hassan al Ramar, a Syrian, and Marcus Grecus, a Greek by name, who is today assumed to have been working from Arabic sources. One potential route of transmission were the numerous Arabic military technicians and other learned men who had found themselves in Mongol service in the era, as well as traders and churchmen. The third major transmission is that of metal barrel bombards and handguns to Europe around 20 years after this in around 1300. This final route was perhaps overland via Russia, with some complex linguistic forensics perhaps providing evidence for this transmission route to both the Arabs and the Europeans. So the Mongols were instrumental in the transmission of knowledge of gunpowder, and understanding this is going to be very important in forthcoming episodes when we consider how the West took up gunpowder and the extent to which early adopters may have fostered their own interest in poisoned applications, either striking upon the idea independently or somehow drawing inspiration from Chinese traditions. In conclusion then, we can be pretty sure that the Mongols were key to the spread of gunpowder to Europe via numerous routes which occurred in a window of around a century. Sadly, however, we are little further in understanding the extent to which Mongols employed various poisoned variants of these weapons which, sadly, has been a marginal historical concern, and perhaps for good reason. We are, however, much better placed to understand the emergence of gunpowder weapons outside of China in later centuries, and potentially to place in context any claims of gunpowder weapons incorporating poison which surround the initial adoption and later development of these weapons, particularly in Western Europe. And it is to these claims that we turn in the following episode. And so that's it for this episode, and I hope to see you next time as we continue our antisocial history of biological and chemical weapons and warfare on the Poisons and Pestilence podcast.